You're tuned in to The Show on the Road, a music discovery podcast where I interview songwriters, band leaders, and artists from around the world. My name is Zach Lubitin. Today I bring you a conversation I've been wanting to tape for a long, long time. It's with an old musical friend of mine who I haven't spoken to in years. And on this rainy, dreary day in a rainy, dreary week, in a year that seems to be lost already from a COVID-19 shutdown that doesn't allow us to play music in public or see our friends, a sweet dose of pure pop sunshine is needed. And that's the best way I can describe my next guest. So today, in my doldrums, I bring you a conversation I had with the Cheshire Cat of soulful pop rock, a New York-born multi-instrumentalist who is the special sauce drummer, guitarist, music director, and high falsetto vocalist to several artists like Darren Chris, and is one of the most visible members of the mysterious funk ambassadors, Wolfpack who have playfully thrown off the yokes of old-school music industry tradition by crowdfunding revered funk albums that have propelled them to sold-out shows at Red Rocks and Madison Square Garden, and now this artist is bursting out on his own. His name is Theo Katzman. So yeah, this episode was a bit of an experiment. It took nearly a year and a half to pin Theo down, and we were scheduled to meet up in person at the end of March, you know, two people talking into one mic, as we do, but then... Right as he was out promoting his cheeky, hook-happy banger of a new record, Modern Johnny Sings, Songs in the Age of Vibe, all concerts and festivals around the world were stopped. So we couldn't meet up after all. And yet, we tried it out, talking into our phones, talking into our own mics, and you know what? I think we worked it out. And if you listen to yesterday's episode with another Wolfpack collaborator and rising solo artist Joey Dosick, you might have heard that he and Theo are old college mates of mine. Indeed, Katzman was the emergency backup drummer in my college blues band in Michigan. And now, after adding that extra scream of rhythmic energy and raw bone groove to other people's work for years, he has emerged as a show-stopping frontman in his own right. His solo material blends his muscular jazz school chops with an unabashed pop sparkle that reminds me, honestly, of a young MJ emerging out of the shadow of the Jackson 5, barely harnessed joy in each song, always searching for that hook that keeps you singing even in your sleep. Indeed, I admit, I woke up in the middle of the night humming his song, The Death of Us, which, considering our strange times, may be the love song our shutdown summer is waiting for. If you think about it, this might be one of the weirdest summers America will ever have. There's not going to be any music festivals. There's not going to be any baseball, possibly. You know what? People are going to be stuck inside waiting for something to lift them up. What's that going to be? Who's that going to be? Is it going to be one of the young TikTok stars doing dance routines and teaching you how to make tuna casserole? Or maybe it's a guy like Theo Katzman who's got that special sparkle in each song. I want you to sit back, pour yourself something cold and fizzy, and tune in to your new favorite pop star, I don't care if you haven't heard of him yet. You will. Mark my words. So here he is now, the one and only Theo Katzman. There's fog in the mirror No reflection back from the glass I can't see the future Only the past There's fog in the Would you like it to be confused by 
All right, let's let's. I think we let's try to clap at the same time. Like one, two, three, clap. Yeah, like we're, we're beginning our crosstown quarantine chat. Okay, ready? Yeah. One, two, three. three. Ooh, that was nicely in time. My, yours sounded late to me. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're the drummer. You would know. <laughs> well, no, it was like I could hear you go. I could hear my clap in your clap, and then I heard your clap. You know what I mean? You know. Um, what if we just, yeah. My name is Theo Katzman. I'm a singer-songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, musician, and I'm from originally New York, New York, then was transported to Long Island at a young age, then moved to Michigan for college, lived there for a while, moved back to New York, lived in Brooklyn as an adult for two years, got totally... uh, ass whooped by New York and uh, <laughs> moved back to Michigan and then moved to L.A. And it's been great ever since. <laughs> it is a, a unique bruising that I think you get from living in New York for any length of time, like yes. in the city. It's hard for the soul, but also like really formative. And I think everyone should do it at oh. some point in their life. Yeah, man. I think if you have that itch, it's a good one to scratch. Um, it is unique, man. And I, I love New York. Don't get me wrong. I just sort of, it was a big, uh, it was a big step for me to feel like I didn't make it there, you know, to quote, to quote Sinatra. <laughs> you know what I mean? If I, you can't make it there, <laughs> you can't make it anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so that was important for me to, have that experience and then get over that, you know, and be like, okay, wait, I got the rest of my life and this is okay. And this is good. So yeah, it was a, it was a good thing. I sort of take pride in, uh, my time there and uh, I'm glad I lived there and who knows, maybe I'll live there again someday, but I definitely, when I meet people that are, have lived there for like, you know, seven or more years, I'm always like, wow, man. Yes. You did it, you know, and they they always know what you mean. They're like, thank you. Thank you, man. <laughs> it's like, yo, you did something. <laughs> I think as a Pisces, I find that I have a violent need to be able to reset my brain by jumping into the ocean mm. at a moment's notice. Yeah, that's like, that's a bit easier in Santa Monica than it is in in New York, probably. And I when I, I lived a couple summers in New York with my you know, my dad's family is all from there. Right. And I did like, you know, film school internships and stuff. And I would go to Coney Island. Like I would yes. just be like, I have to somehow be near the water. And Dude. it was very difficult to get there. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, you got to go all the way on the train. I think we need to address the elephant in the room in that you are the podcast's very first and who knows, maybe last conversation in the middle of this pandemic (laughs) yeah good call (laughs) and who knows maybe last well Well, i hope not um i like to have an intimate conversation with people staring them in the eye you know across the microphone right right but that is illegal at the moment right um, unless i was interviewing my wife across the living room which would be fascinating but a little weird yeah right um and you know i talked to uh, your 
comrade in arms Joey Dosick um, yes. the week that Kobe Bryant died. Mm. And it felt like that was a very serious and very tragic moment in our uh, adopted city's history. No doubt. And we had no idea what was about to come. You know? Totally, man. It felt like, honestly, talking to someone in January and talking to someone like you now in the first week in April is like talking to someone in two different eras of history, in a way. I think you're right, man. Which is odd, but it's... Doesn't it feel like a month and a half ago when you put out your record? Or like, was it two months now? That it feels like a different time. Dude, completely. I even... Even just two weeks ago feels like a completely different time. I mean, I was on tour, like, until March 12th. Yeah, us too. Yeah, right. Where was your last show? Cincinnati. It was supposed to be Montreal. There were three more shows left, but I made the decision to postpone them because of all the virus stuff. And it's hard to imagine now, but that actually was not really being done yet. You know, like it all kind of hit the fan that day and the next day, that sort Mm -hmm. of 24-hour period. It was like man, are we going to do these shows? And it was, I basically just had to make a decision. And, you know, then I'm not saying I was like ahead of the curve in some special way. I just, what I'm trying to say is that there wasn't, nobody really had a general public opinion yet about, you know, events and what was going on. So, well, we all were hoping for the best and hoping that maybe it would just be confined to a couple pockets, you know? Right. Um, I did a interview with the Wood Brothers um, in at the Regent, and they had cool. just had their Seattle shows canceled. Sure. And it was like, oh, well, that's really too bad, but I know it started up there, and it'll probably stay up there. It, it felt like we were very naive, even like, you sure. know, early March. I know, and man. And we were about to fly to the East Coast, and I think I knew it was going to be some bad things coming, but it was like, what are you going to do? You have a new record. You want to present these new songs to people. This is your only chance to do that. Absolutely, really. man. You know. Did you, how many did you have to cancel? We were sort of in the last leg of the run, so it was yeah. like maybe another week and a half, two weeks of shows. Hey, that's a lot. But I mean, I'm super thankful that the big shows like the Fillmore and the Troubadour and right. Seattle and Portland all got in, you know. But totally. in, in retrospect, I mean, we played in Seattle in mid, like late February, 400 people packed in a place like that is not OK, probably. Well, <laughs> uh, that's, you know, we're, time will tell, man, because, yeah, I was, you know, a couple of us in my touring party were like sick with a fever at the end of January. And it's like, who knows what that was, you know? Um, I mean, I was playing in what? 34 States, <laughs> you know, yeah, like Getting a nice sampling of all the different possibilities of the COVID-19. Yeah. <laughs> and, sh- and shaking a hundred hands a night, you know what I mean? It's like, right. Who knows? Um, well, well, but, I had yeah. this. I showed this. I showed this video to uh, my wife earlier of 
our last show, we put, was which was in Brooklyn. I mean, it was like probably. I think we were the last show that was sh- sanctioned in New York that night. Mm. It was still going at Rough Trade. Wow. And everyone's like hugging, and I, like our singer Liz was signing a guy's chest, like his with sweat all over him. It was chest, like, yeah. You're like well, that was Sorry. so dumb, <laughs> so stupid. Yeah. But well. You it wouldn't be stupid in normal times, or or you know, without, yeah, it's hard to say. It's like we'll just have to see what what we all find out when there's some testing available. I'm glad you're sounding he- happy and healthy across town right now. Yeah, man, I'm I'm fine. I mean, I think we're really lucky as musicians um, that we at least on some deg- some level are our jobs basically require isolation (laughs) so i'm not a stranger to it even though i'm a an extroverted guy it's like yeah it feels like we're just on a vacation from tour forever (laughs) yeah i think yeah totally there in the short term it feels like oh i can make use of this although it's it's a very grim reality for society and like you know it's it's not like it's it can be a little difficult to get in the zone sort of inspiration wise when you're like you know during this kind of thing but also i think on one level it's i'm trying to use it as like okay well today i'm gonna work as much as i can on music because what else am i gonna do (laughs) you know have you been able to set a daily routine since the shutdown Um, i'm basically day I'm day two of a routine right now. <laughs> so okay. it took, took me a while because I had to drive uh, back from my tour in the van uh, with all the gear. I drove back to L.A. and I, like, slept in the van one night. I was just, you know, <laughs> freaked out and uh, being, a being you know, full Statham, going full Jason Statham on it and shaved my head. You know, I, I, went, I, I went in on it. <laughs> But, you drove uh, back from Cincinnati? I drove back from the Midwest. Yeah, I went to Chicago. We we, we were in Michigan about to play the tr- Detroit the next night, and I everybody flew home when, once we postponed, and, and then I just drove to Chicago to kind of... I have some friends there, and I stayed for a couple days trying to figure out what my next move would be, whether I was going to like stay in the Midwest indefinitely, or but I also had the tour vehicle, and I knew that if I drove it back, I could not have to rely on the airports and I wouldn't have to rely on shipping companies and for the Mm. gear. So I just made that call, but it was a, it was a, you know, a long haul from Chicago to LA and by yourself. Yeah. Wow. I did it in two days, (laughs) Wow. but it was a long two days. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a trucker by nature. Um, somehow I, I like long drives, but, you know, getting home and getting all the gear out of my house and back into my house and cleaned my house and it took me a couple of weeks to to kind of get into a okay, I'm home and I live in LA again, which always is the case after a tour. So today and the and yesterday I've been doing some writing and practicing. So yeah, now I feel I feel ready for the for the quarantine schedule wise anyway. What is your move in a long drive to keep you alert? Do you do podcasts? Do you listen to records? I do love podcasts. Um, if I can find something that I'm really like obsessed with, I'll just that'll keep me going all day. You know, 
I I did a lot of the uh, Dolly Parton's America series. Yeah, that's um, great. Listened to the news a ton, which was just strange, you know, um, during the evolution of the pandemic and also Earth, Wind & Fire, <laughs> some pump up, you know. Uh, right. Foy Vance, I am love Foy Vance. His music pumps me up with heart and soul. I don't know, I can kind of lock into a mode, even sometimes no music, and I'm just thinking, you know. Got some matcha. Um, I don't push it. If I get tired, I I go to sleep. You know, I pull over and go to a hotel or something. But um, yeah, it was it was it was wild time. I'm home. You ever fallen asleep? Almost fallen no. asleep while driving, or like had any moments like that? No, I mean I I really try to avoid that. You know, if I have like a whoa I'm tired thing, I'll 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 bail. Try to catch it on the front end. I definitely fell asleep in my car, not driving, but I put my car in park at the, it, right in front of the Century City Mall at the red light. Whoa. Just like on Santa Monica Boulevard. I was like, I'm feeling a little tired. I'm going to put it in the park. It's just taking a while to turn to green. And then a cop pulled up next to me and was like, are you okay? And I like had no idea how long I'd been out. Oh my gosh, dude. I was just like, I think I was just exhausted coming back from a show or something. I don't know, you know. Yeah. You know? And I think I've realized that that is an issue for me, that I've had multiple times where, especially like I give so much energy during a show that I oh, dude, yeah, shouldn't sure. drive after a show that for a long ride. Totally, man. You know? Yeah, you're like, you are a machine and on some level and it's like i love if 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 i'm on a tour that will accommodate the time pre-show to like do a little workout beforehand i love doing that and i one time was trying to find pools wherever i was and i like would get a swim in and i remember getting like a 30 minute i did like my full workout swim and then you know had a wolfpack show and like 20 minutes into the show, I was like, uh oh, like no more yeah. calories in the tank, you know? <laughs> it's like, oh yeah. shoot. I like literally spent all my chips. I got nothing left, you know? I barely made it to the end of the gig. It was like, whoa, I had never experienced that. So then I learned it's like, okay, if you're going to swim, maybe like 10 minutes because swimming is so fatiguing. So that was funny. Maybe maybe we should tell the audience how we know each other, man, because we, we go way back. We should say that. Um, I mean, it's your yeah, show. You I mean, tell me I, what you do. <laughs> I, I first encountered you uh, at the University of Michigan. Um, you were in the jazz school, right? Yes. And you were part of the Catherine Street All-Stars over there. Um, you yeah, know, if, for folks who have not been to Ann Arbor, Michigan... The student, I don't want to say ghetto because that feels wrong at this point. Uh, it does feel wrong. <laughs> it is a g- grouping of house, houses that are in various states of disrepair, perhaps. Um, and we had a house with my band, Midnight Special at the time, and some folks. And then you guys had a band up the street, you know, had a house up the street with... Uh, um, who lived with you there? Was was Joey there as well, or was Aaron Gold there and some of those yeah, people? Yeah, there were a couple different iterations of that house, basically. But yeah, it was basically me, Joey Dosick, Aaron Gold, Lloyd Cargo, Christian Carpenter, 
um, Tyler Duncan, and everyone's girlfriend at some point, too. I feel like there were 12 people living in that house. And I was always jealous of your house because you were just far enough away from the police station where you could literally light things on fire, as you often did on your front lawn, (laughs) because you had a fire breather in the house. And we could not throw a single party without the cops coming within 10 minutes of us playing music. That it was just totally bizarre. Automatically happened. Yeah, that was a bizarre feature of our house. It was set back from the street in such a way that you couldn't. Yeah, for, and it was between two other houses. I don't know. For some reason, it just didn't. We never got shut down, and we would definitely play loud music. And as you pointed out, Aaron would would be spinning fire. <laughs> on the, so yeah, that's insane. That's a good point. I don't know how that happened. That's but I remember, literally, we had a f- house full of people. We went into one verse of a Tom Petty song, and the cops were at the door. Oh. Like I was like, how is this possible? We literally just started playing the first verse. Oh, no. You know? <laughs> and, then, and then we literally, like, sheepishly walked up the street and saw your house with full music going and a fire breather on the <laughs> front lawn. And we're like... How is this possible? That is, yeah, that's truly funny, man. I don't have any answers and there. That that's just amazing luck uh, for us. But it is it is amazing how I mean you've been collaborating with a lot of those people in that house. You know, Tyler has produced stuff, and you work with his group and Joey Dosick, obviously. How are those friendships carried on into your musical life now? Yeah, man, that's a good question. They honestly, I tell people that I'm. I feel like I can trace every single dollar I've made as a professional musician to to that that street in Ann Arbor, basically. <laughs> um, I don't think that's much of an exaggeration, if any at all, because I just made some amazing friends there during that time, and that re- that turned into a music scene, and then the music scene just grew into the next stage where it was like, oh, somebody, I need somebody to master my records. Of course, I'm going to call Devin. He's the best. And then that it's, it hasn't changed. I mean, I think, I think I'm lucky in that the people that I came up with were really special and are really the best at what they do. Some of the best people out there, you know? So um, we all wanted to grow together and sort of grow the uh, the scene and uh, become the people we wanted to be as opposed to, like, get to a point where we could hire all of our heroes. Do you know what I mean? It was like, yeah. what if you could become the artist and that that guy could become the drummer and that guy could become the bass player and et cetera? For folks who maybe obviously know you from Wolfpack, you know, there was an earlier inter- iteration of this sort of s- funky supergroup when we were in college called My Dear Disco that a lot of folks fell in love with then, you know. Yes. And that was kind of an interesting almost uh, experiment where you guys were doing this, I don't know what you call it, dance think. I mean, that's what the name of that record was, and it's almost yeah. sort of the genre that you were creating in some way. 
Yeah. Does, is that connected to Wolfpack spiritually, or am I just well, kind of making that up? No, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. It's, it's, that band was super heart, a lot of heart, and really good musicianship, and a good concept, but it was seven, a seven-piece democratic organization, which I, I just feel like that doesn't work, or at least it didn't work for us. It was a great time in my life and in all of our lives, and I think everybody in that band wanted to be in a scene together, and eventually I just sort of realized that I, it wasn't really the music I wanted to make. I wanted to, you know, write my own songs, and I always was a singer-songwriter in high school, and then I went to college and was playing drums in the jazz band and was like, okay, what am I doing? And then I started playing guitar in the dance rock band, and then I just took me a while to get back to my roots, um, which ironically then Wolfpack sort of exploded what seemed to me like out of nowhere on the internet, and then it was like, now that's happening, which was an amazing blessing for all of us. But again, I still wanted to do my own thing, and part of the reason Wolf has worked is that there it's Jack's thing. It's like Jack is walking the dog, you know? It's his baby or it's his dog, and so he's the leader and has a vision and assumes the administrative responsibilities, and everyone else kind of gets brought in to do their part that they already excel at, and then Jack kind of plays with the results, you know? So we're all kind of playing, we're characters in his puppet show, sort of. But I don't mean that in a weird way. I mean it, like, in a beautiful yeah, way. Yeah, it's like a it's circus. A he's like a circus a ringleader, project. this guy. Totally. And he's a, he's a master, man. I mean, he's, and, you know, one of my best friends. So music aside and art aside, Jack Jack is, uh, Jack's like one of my all-time closest friends. But also, he's a, he's a brilliant brilliant artist and amazing thinker and how did you how did you meet jack stratton how did you meet jack and how did wolfpack come together for people don't know i kind of i guess i knew of jack through the school program he was in the performing arts technology program the pat program at u of m and he was a bit of a notorious guy because he was sort of kept to himself but he made really amazing work so people were always like who is this guy (laughs) Uh, and he had a band called Groove Spoon that was a large funk ensemble, and it had this guy, Antoine Stanley, singing in it, which, of course, you know who right. that is. <laughs> so, yeah, at some point, I started hanging out with Jack, and we were just having a blast. I, he's an amazing drummer, and I hired him to play drums in my band, just my songs, and um, we were having fun doing that. Me, Jack, and Woody, and Jack asked if I, at some point, the bass player in Jack's band, the Groove Spoon, moved to New York, so Jack asked me if I wanted to play bass. I had just quit My Dear Disco and was focusing on my solo project, and I told him, like, look, I'm really not trying to be in a band. I just got out of the band thing. You know, I can't be in a band. I can't be in a band. I can't be in a band. No band. And he's like, yeah, totally. We're probably going to do one gig a month, maybe. So, you know, whenever, you know, just come over tomorrow. We'll play some tunes. Like, all good. We'll just see how it feels. I'm like, okay, great. 
this is me on bass, by the way. So I, which I was, I was playing bass in a church gig at that point every week, which was amazing. And, uh, I just, I love playing bass. <laughs> so anyway, I was, I, I show up to the rehearsal and played a couple Steely Dan tunes and it was like, sweet, that's fun. All right, guys, see you later. Let me know what, you know, let me know how it goes. If you ever want to play a gig or whatever. And Jack said, yeah, I got a guy coming in tomorrow to play, but, like, unless, like, he's a total freak, you know, then it's you got the gig and all good. I said, okay, great. So I called Jack the next evening, and he picked the phone. Hello? I said, was he a total freak? <laughs> and he just went, like, in tears, seemingly. He went, he was a total freak. <laughs> and that was Joe Dart, of course. Whoops. <laughs> So, yeah. <laughs> so great. I mean, I I really didn't. I, I, I was, you know, I I didn't think I really could have done the band anyway. But so then Joe ended up playing in that group, and at some point, our friend Jake Birch, who actually mixed my last two albums, my live album and this one that just came out in January, Jake was a senior in the Pat department and had his uh, senior thesis project was recording a band on tape. So he called Jack and asked Jack if he could bring a band in and Jack called me and Joe and Woody and was like, yeah, come on in. Let's play some tunes. And we played a couple tunes, no rehearsal. Somebody filmed it. Jack put it on the internet and that became the first Wolf album. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a total product of the burgeoning new internet thing called YouTube and Jack being a visionary and seeing and understanding the potential of that that platform and just putting it all together. I mean, it's really an amazing thing. I, I mean, I'm still, you know, I'm going to be a singer-songwriter until I die. So that's that's like what I work on every day and that's that's what I'll do for my life. That's what I'm trying to do but being able to work with jack has been an amazing influence on me just like on unbelievable opportunity to i feel like i'm I'm in a band with steve jobs you know (laughs) it's like one well being able to step out onto the stage for a sold out madison square garden you know as someone from new york i mean that is you know it's about as good as it gets totally it's crazy <laughs> it's totally What was crazy. that feeling? You know, it was it was profoundly calmer than I expected, man. I mean, it was it was beautiful. It was like a beautiful um I just I just felt like I was aware that I was part of a phenomenon and I feel like everyone at that concert basically felt the same way. And I'm not sure if everybody realizes how much we also felt like that. But you know, it's it's not like, all right, guys, here we go to do the gig. It was like, this is insane. This is super special. This is the world's greatest arena. And as you mentioned, I mean, I, I grew up in New York, and I went to shows at the Garden, and it was always like, whoa, we're going to go to the Garden. You know, it's the Garden, man. <laughs> what was the <laughs> first like, show you remember seeing there? It's uh, I saw The Who there. I saw Fish there. I saw... Guess I was a bit of a jam kid at the time. 
and other concerts. I wonder if I saw U2 there. You'd think I'd remember that, but I've seen so many U2 live. No, I don't think I saw U2 there. I think that was just me watching a lot of the U2 live DVD. And your dad, your dad was a, a jazz trumpet player, right? Yes. What did he teach you? Man, my dad's, you know, one of my biggest influences. He basically, his things were, uh, he had some great phrases. One was strive for tone. Uh, the other one was hold them out on the end, which was make sure you hold notes for their full value. Hmm. He also would say make every note the same size. Hmm. Make every note round when I was playing drums. And he would also say, you know, he'd, he'd, he was very hands off. Like he let me find things on my own. He was not, he was the opposite of like a stage dad. Mm. He was completely just, you know, but he would let me practice for hours, you know, drums, (laughs) but he'd occasionally he'd open the door to the basement. At some point, my parents, I was fortunate enough to have my parent have parents that could afford to like finish the basement for us. So that for me, so that I could go down there and play drums in a carpeted basement. But until then, we had uh, we had my drums in the living room, which was pretty wild, um, just because they're so loud, you know. Your mom but, must um, your mom they, must have loved that. My mom and dad both loved it. Actually, they were. <laughs> my mom is the daughter of two professional musicians as well, so my mom grew up with touring parents and. Yeah. Um, she married a jazz a jazz dude so they were just like both super happy that i was playing and <clears throat> that i loved it and then but yeah my dad would open the door to the basement occasionally and he'd he'd yell down like slow down you can't play it at that tempo and then he'd close the door <laughs> <laughs> that would be it so he and he was right you know it was like hold on a minute i can't play it at that tempo you know yeah. like get it get it filled in at a at a slower tempo and i think what he meant in terms of making what i took to mean from making every note the same size is really practicing drums slowly enough so that you can basically get each tone on the drums to fill the same space in the subdivision um feel wise so for example a bass drum has like a bigger woofier rounder sound than the closed mm-hmm. hi-hat right and it probably has more resonance than and certain notes are inherently more staccato like a closed hi-hat so when you're playing an instrument like drums and you're trying to get everything to feel good groove wise but you're playing between all these essentially different instruments like mm-hmm. cymbals drums um trying to make every note the same size is like a really wonderful exercise just to keep in your brain just the notion of that you know you don't want to have certain notes feel like they're rushing just because the sound is a smaller more staccato sound do you feel as a drummer do you feel intimidated or inspired when a guy like james gadson comes into the room with wolfpack oh man completely inspired i mean i can't play like james but james is like Everything I ever wanted to do on drums. I love James Gadsden's playing, man. Also the best wig. <laughs> yeah, totally. I I didn't even didn't even occur to me that was a wig. I, you know, it's like 
dude is just amazing. But uh, yeah, his his he's just he's one of my favorite drummers. Feel wise, uh, nobody nobody really has anything on Gadsden. Well, we just uh, you know we just lost Bill Withers a couple days ago. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, you know, Gadsden was you know on a lot of his recordings and yep. that uh, amazing documentary uh, still bill which is just on youtube you can watch it right now um yeah i we watched it on our projector last night and cool. you know it's funny because james you know as a even as a young guy in like the 70s still has that same hair <laughs> you know <laughs> awesome we're like we're like has That's he awesome. changed at all like Dude, the groove is there the hair is there incredible man he sounds he sounds so good and and one of the coolest things about James is when we were in the studio with him, we'd be like working out the tune and it'd be like he'd sort of just be sitting there kind of looking straight ahead or looking around and, you know, nodding his head. And then at some point, Jack would be like, yeah, I think we're ready to roll. And he'd go, one, two, three. Like he, he was, as soon as you gave the notion that you might be ready to record, he would literally start counting it off. It was like, whoa, yeah. okay, boom. He just ready to cut, you know, it was really, really, really awesome. You know, speaking of that, your your new record, Modern Johnny Sings, Songs in the Age of Vibe. That feels like almost a, a, a prevailing thread of your record, this sort of get to the point, make you feel good, make you sing along and get to the next track, you know? Oh, cool, man. And, Glad and, to hear that, actually. The I was song, worried it was going to be too dense. <laughs> no, because I think like you synthesized, I think this very groovy pop sunshine vibe, but there's, there's some really deep lyrics in it. There's some really deep hooks, obviously, but it, for some reason, especially the song, uh, the death of us, which I think is my favorite track on the record. Um, Oh, cool, man. Thanks. It's like if Bruno Mars and Randy Newman made a record together, Cool. <laughs> Brandy Newman. Brandy Nars. <laughs> right? Yeah, cool, dude. That's, I'll take it. Tell me about the death of us because I I, I played it again in, in in my car as we were driving down PCH today and it just like it almost makes you want to like you're kind of shaking in your seat a little bit as you drive <laughs> you know oh that's great to hear man I'm glad you like it dude um yeah so that song I, I had gone to I went to Berlin for a month um I guess two years ago now good lord crazy <laughs> to think that that was two years ago but um. I had just I had been to Berlin on tour a couple times and I I felt just for some reason like called to spend some time there if I could afford it and pull it off and then um while I was there the most recent time I had met some people and some musicians who were really cool and I was like you think I could get like a sublet here with a piano in it and they're like oh yeah I'm sure you can man you know so I basically sent some emails out and it happened. It was like, whoa, 
someone's got a pad that they need to rent out for a month. This is amazing. So I flew there and I, you know, got into the pad and went out, had falafel with my one friend that I had there (laughs) in the city. And then, you know, we had some beers and I kind of had a couple too many and I felt, and I ate some fried food and I just basically woke up feeling terrible and pretty disappointed with myself because I came here to Berlin to like, you know, have an artistic experience, creative experience, have to be really focused, you know, and here I am like kind of hung over the first day and I was just like, I just was upset with myself, you know, and I, I got the guitar out and I, I just picked it up. I had a headache and I had this stupid idea come to me that was like, falafel's gonna be the death of me. Okay. <laughs> and I Go thought, on. okay, this is, this is the stupidest thing I've ever written. But it was like, look, I'm just, you know, falafel's gonna be the death of me, man. I, you know, and then I was like, well, write all songs, you know, write, write all ideas. Like here, here I am to be creative, like whatever, man, uh, allow myself to write the stupidest song I've ever written. Mm-hmm. So I pick the guitar up and I start writing falafel's going to be the death of me. And then almost immediately I was like, whoa, love's going to be the death of me. And then it was like, wow, this is a great song. <laughs> Instant so, rewrite. It was a cool rewrite. I mean, I'm sure you've had experiences like that. I mean, I've heard pe- uh, people say that that yesterday started as scrambled eggs. Right. From McCartney, you know? And it's like sometimes you just need that, you need that seed. Um, you need you need a window in to, to the concept to the of the song. And, and so I had this... Yeah, then I just started writing. I was like, wait, yeah, lo- love's going to be the death of me because, you know, and then I sort of wrote about feeling out of control and, but but who cares? Like, what is it, what's the point of even trying to rein it in because it's all such a mess? And so, you know, these, these aren't, this isn't really necessarily how I feel. I sort of, as a songwriter, I think part of the art is like going um, hyperbolic with feelings. Mm-hmm. And really, like, allowing yourself to get dramatic and, uh, you know, be yeah, be hyperbolic or, or draw something out or combine experiences that you may have had or haven't had that you're imagining, you know, into, into creating something that ca- that's really powerful. And so that song has a basically, like, a dark message, but it's really it's really catchy and upbeat, you know? So, yeah. And you, you know, you, I think you, you write a lot of very <laughs> sort of open hearted love songs where you're saying like, look, you know, you're, it's almost like you're telling the audience, this is a love song, <laughs> you know? And you want it almost, you know, you have a song called crappy love song. You have a song called pop song, right? right? Where you're almost like analyzing the form within the song. <laughs> Totally. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. I have done that. I don't know. It's like, a. I guess there's some self-awareness humor there, you know, 
Well, crappy, I do love. Yeah, crappy love yeah, song is also crappy love song is one of my favorites of yours as well, and it's it's because it's sort of like, you know, it reminds me of one of my all time favorite songs, the uh, silly love songs. You know, the Paul Paul McCartney's solo song. Yeah, you know, yeah. where he's you know the world has had enough of silly love songs, but what's wrong with that? Totally. I love <laughs> I love you over and over and over and over again, and it's so good. Yeah. You know, <laughs> totally. Yeah, man. Well, he's he's a master, a master of the craft. But yeah, in terms of sometimes you can get into a space where you're like, this is what I'm actually saying. What if I just said it? Or, or this is what I mean. So what if I just said it? <laughs> you know, and it's like, is this allowed? This is so on the nose. It's all it's too on the nose. But then it's like maybe if it's completely too on the nose, it's actually perfect. Because I think at a certain point, it's like, is this another love song? Like, do we need another love song? You know? Right. Yeah, that, that hook came to me as I was, um, I, yeah, I was in, I had been going through a very intense break, uh, breakup and I, I was moving out of New York and I was, I was in Massachusetts doing a recording session and I had, I was in my friend's car and I was in the passenger seat he had left, we had parked and he went inside and I just stayed in the car and listening to the radio. And it was like every station I flipped through, it was like, this shit sucks. (laughs) This all sucks. And I was like, everything is sap. Everything is is sap. Like I I don't need this anymore, man. I can't no more of this shit. (laughs) Right. And I, that chorus just came to me. It was like, I don't, the funny thing about the song is it's not even a love song. It's right. a bad love song. It's a crappy love song. It really is. It's like it's all about two people that that are breaking up. You know, <laughs> two sad people don't have much to say. <laughs> that kind of thing. Anyway. I was going to ask you about that song, Billionaire. If you, yeah. you know, I love that line. I'm going to leave the, the windows and doors unlocked so, because I don't have any shit to steal. But if you had <laughs> the most valuable thing that you think that you've ever been given or that you own right now, an instrument or a, a token that you've gotten along the way in your career, what do you think that would be? Yeah, it's a really hard question to answer, man. I mean, I, I instrument-wise, I, I really... I really appreciate and don't want to live without my my Strat that I bought when I was 16, my first guitar, which is the most the one I most play. You know, I guess if if I got a phone call and it was like earthquake, five minutes, right? I'd be like, okay, I'd throw the Strat in the car, I'd throw my kick drum in the car, and you, know, <laughs> you throw your kick drum. That's one, a, that's a that's a very cumbersome thing. To- I know, I know. I just love this kick drum, <laughs> twenty inch, old Ludwig. Um, yeah, and then I'd probably, and then, you know, one picture of my mom, and could probably drive away. I did have the thought this morning, you know, as we're, you know, waking up each day to this pandemic. You know, what if the big one, the earthquake that's going to hit Los Angeles, what if that Bro. also hit right now? 
Dude, I've thought that same thing, man. And in a way, I mean, my oh, wife man. joked, like, she's like, well, we're kind of uniquely prepared right now. We have all this water and food in the house. <laughs> but, like, it's also just yeah. like, man, can we not? Can we separate the two disasters, <laughs> please? Yeah, I mean, I felt, I felt that way a little bit about Nashville because as soon as this tour was postponed, I, my first thought, because that tornado hit Nashville, like, right. just a couple days prior. Right. And... I felt really moved to like go down there and help out. And then it was like, dude, I can't do that. You know, we can't right. now, now we all got to like go nowhere. I was like, damn, this is like, what a tragedy, man. A tragedy on top of a tragedy, you know? But, um, in terms of, we could go down that rabbit hole for sure. But, uh, in terms of the song stuff, I do lock my house. Okay. <laughs> I yeah. don't particularly want you to steal everything in my house. Right. Um, I think that song, you know, I mean, I, I experimented with writing some stuff that was topical in terms of, you know, mm-hmm. 2020 America mm-hmm. and world. And I don't regret it. Um, I'm really proud of the music um, because I do have a uh, rule with myself, which is to like write what's, occurs to me, you know, mm-hmm. what's in my, what's in my heart and mind. So those songs came out of me and I, I fought for them. You know, I were, I, I saw them through and, but it is funny to, to see people be like, Oh, he must be, you know, to make assumptions about my views or whatever from a song. Like I don't want to be a billionaire is, is really not, I know that the lyric says, I don't want to be a billionaire, but the songs to me is really about like rock and roll, you know, like what happened to rock and roll? Why, why are we worshiping like tech? You know, come on, man. Right. I don't, who cares? (laughs) That's how I feel. Um, and of course it's, there's, there, there are some nuggets about wealth inequality in there. And, and I do have those, those feelings, but, um, yeah, I'm not, well, it's think, more just like I think there's just, some let's can we take it all down a notch, you know? Like So close your eyes and cover up your ears. This ain't the message that you came to hear, but I can't help it if I just don't care. I don't want to be a billionaire. I'm tired of in about the IPO. Like the hyper wealth obsession is is the is not my favorite thing. Well, I think I think <laughs> you said way. it, you know, and the, I think it's right in the first verse, you know, it's like, what do I need really? Like a comfy chair, a nice place to live, yeah. you know, like this is that's what I'm talking about. This is enough. And I think that there's this thing in this country where a very uh, status and being bigger and better than your neighbor type country, which is not the case with a lot of uh, especially European countries, you know. We want mm. to stand out and be the best and be the biggest and be the richest and be the most powerful. doesn't matter whose neck we have to step up, step on to get there. You know, it's, <laughs> it's weird, man. It's a weird, I mean, I don't, you know, I, we'll see in six months. I mean, if all my money runs out, <laughs> then I'll be three months. I don't know how long I can uh, survive without doing anything. But I will try to come out of this with a new record, you know, written 
or whatever that is. Is that is like, that the goal? Is that what you're you're aiming for? Well, you know, I'm trying to be creative, and um, I have I've wanted to do some home recording and um, kind of been working on chipping away at that and seeing how good I can get with that sound wise to say like, Hey, maybe I could make a record in my house. Um, it's certainly, you know, with the music business or anything creative, I feel like anything these days and age, it's just like, there's no rules, there's no guarantees. And we're all trying to figure out how to make it happen. And everybody has a completely different way to do it because their lives are completely unique and have their own sets of bizarre circumstances and network and all that, you know, we're all totally in a different situation um, based on what we know how to do, what we are motivated to do, who we know, you know, what resources we have available to us. It's such a different game for everyone. And, uh, it's a weird time to be trying to figure out how to pull it together. I mean, I think the maybe the good news is everybody's kind of in the same situation. Um, and it's also the bad news, <laughs> you know. But so you know the 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 whole picture of being a a career artist, I think, is like really takes a lifetime to pull it off. <laughs> it's like I'm trying to encourage everyone right now to not feel too bad about oh man I'm making most of my money teaching like and now I don't have any students I should have done something else it's like well you know this is a this is like a once in a lifetime situational emergency hopefully you know we haven't seen anything like this I would say probably since the great depression I don't know whatever's about to hit us Societally is like pretty rare, you know. Nobody living right now could have it, it has dealt with it before. Is that fair to say? I have two grandmas who are still around who were born in the twenties. God bless them. Oh man, amazing! And I some I've been talking to them more often because you know obviously they are the definition of at, at risk in this. Um, yeah, man. Are they doing okay? They are. Uh, knock on wood, but it's like I was talking to my one grandma in uh, who's from uh, Ostning, like outside New York, and she still works five days a week. <laughs> She's ninety four years old. She just turned ninety four. Wow. She's wow. like a hard ass. I mean, she literally has never learned how to drive or have a computer or have a cell phone, and she takes the taxi and and runs this office at this doctor's. You know business park you know wow man and she's now <laughs> she she is not going to work because her taxi service shut down <laughs> you know oh my good li- goodness yeah of which i was like grandma you shouldn't be going to work like no. what are you doing <laughs> you know yeah. but she's like hey you know don't tell me what to do like i've made it this far you know i i go to that's work that's point. what i've been doing since i was like 12 you know but she was talking about when she was growing up, how everything that they needed and everything that existed in their little world was like basically on their street, 
you know, it was like, right. You go to the bakery in the morning, you go to the, uh, the butcher, you go to the bank, you go to the, you know, the hardware store. We knew every single person working in every single place. My grandmother who raised me didn't speak English or read or write. And yet wow. it was like, okay. Like it was like everyone kind of knew each other. You know, she was talking about how <laughs> the the mothers with their babies would leave the babies in their carriages just outside on the street, like in a line. And no one would say anything. It was <laughs> like, yeah, like the neighborhood will watch over the kids while we do our shopping. And she's wow. like, yeah, people probably think that's insane now. But like in 1938, that was just like everyone would leave their kid in the street and that was fine. Yeah, see, modernity, man. I mean, I'm not going to... I wasn't alive during that time, and neither were you, but the there are certain elements of what feels like could be called life <laughs> or right. a life that have to... that feel more uh, foundational to to what it feels to me is to, to be human, and namely community and... I kind of get that. I kind of get that that could be possible. It's like we live in an area, you know everybody in the area, and this is what we do, and we're all looking out for each other and I think I think there's a beauty there and as the world gets more modern, you know, we trade we, we lose some of those things. Um and I I personally have tasted a bit more of what feels to me like freedom, actually, you know, being in certain countries and being like, what is this feeling here? Is this the feeling of you have enough money to do what you want and that's kind of okay? Mm. You know, like, have you had that feeling elsewhere? I have. I think, I think in, in Europe, you know, there's, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. In Spain, I lived in Spain as a, as a exchange student, you know, that it was sort of like, yeah. It was enough to kind of, you know, <laughs> you go to work and then you go home and take a nap. And that was like a thing that so, everyone did. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, wait, yeah, like, how can you just go home in the middle of the workday and take a nap? And then you're like, oh, this is awesome. You know? Yeah, right. And then, exactly. you, go, and then you go out to eat dinner at 10 at night, right? And everyone's wow. just hanging in the square and it's like you're talking and it's it's just there's there's like a slowness of that world that in some ways feels kind of um, indulgent, you know, or like right. uh, selfish, you know, like it's just about pleasure. But maybe it's like, well, what are we here for if not to enjoy life? There really? you go. That's the question. I mean, I remember feeling that a little bit in Michigan, too, in certain places in Michigan where it was like, at a certain point, I don't know what it's like now, but at a certain point, you could could live a pretty fun, good life in Kalamazoo. You know what I mean? It felt like, cool, there's stuff to do, there's really good food, there's good beer, there's good music, and it's like 150 bucks a month in rent. (laughs) It was like, Sweet, you know, I feel like yeah that that's we're 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 both t- calling each other here from L.A. and I love L.A. and I such a deep soulful, incredible city, man. 
so much I love about the city, but it is, it's expensive and everywhere is expensive. And America feels like it's at that point where it's like, man, you really got to, you really got to pay to play out here in the USA, <laughs> you know? And, and I, I'm not, I'm not like a total far out hippie, but I'm just like, I've felt, I feel like I've been in places in the world where that's, that bar is not as high and it's like people have a little more headroom to breathe and they might even be, I don't know, happier. Well, it's, it's interesting because there, there is a a grass is always greener situation. Yeah. Everywhere. Right. And I remember having this conversation with these two, uh, ladies who were visiting from Norway and they were, for some reason we were in a hot tub. I don't know where we were. It was like some, it was like a hotel somewhere in like, maybe it was in Mexico. Like it was, they were on vacation. We were on vacation and we were sort of envying their, you know, social democracy and their free health care, And you know, they get the stipend from the government every year. And then they were sort of like, look, when that's all you've known and sort of everything is taken care of for you, it's not really that exciting for us. Like we, we look at you and that Americans can really strive to be like whatever they want to be. And like they can be famous and they can be talented and they can be honored. Whereas a lot of the times in these social democracies, you are shunned if you stand out too much. Right. Gotcha. Because it's about the group. It's about the sort of well-being of everyone, not about your individual ambition. Right. Sure. And that is sort of the interesting thing about this country and especially our our cities that are the most ambitious. That's our contribution, man. It's like we are the ones who are out to do it. (laughs) Damn the torpedoes. It's not about the well-being of our of, of the group it's about what can i achieve and what can i create and that's a, an amazing right. thing but it's also very toxic you know i know man it's both it's both it's like and yeah again here we are calling from la like i'm i drove here you drove here you know you drove <laughs> we drove here to be here to make it to to be around people who wanted the same things and who shared the same um, aspirations in terms of the arts and you know I've we've found them like they're they're here man and they're amazing and what a beautiful community of talented ambitious hard-working people you know there's so much love out here that's kind of underrepresented I feel like in uh, American culture at large I feel like people I meet people and they're like where do you live at LA and they're like man do you like it out there you know, you know, and I'm like, I love it. Yeah. I always say <laughs> you know, like, like, yeah, really? I'll see you in five years. Right, right, right. Like you'll make it here. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I hear you. I, I don't, I don't mean to come uh, dark on. Uh, well, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm an American, you know, and, and so are you. And there's a, uh, these, these days, I don't know, as I've gotten a little older and I've just really been thinking a lot about what that is and what that what that means and what are, what are the costs and what are the benefits, you know? I think the, the things that I, that I have some, I have some dreams in my head about, like, you know, having 
maybe having a building that has a food situation and has a music situation and has a teaching situation in it and has, you know, as a community space. Um, I have dreams like that. And I think to myself, okay, well, what, what will that cost? You know? And it's like, right. Wow. In LA, forget about it probably, <laughs> you know, but, uh, it's just, yeah, this is part of, part of, uh, part of growing up, I think is, you know, looking around and, and trying to learn and, and, uh, really figure out what's important to you. And, um, ambition is not everything, right? Like eventually yes, there you, you, go. you have to be like, okay, when I was 24, I was like, yeah, I'm going to be better than all these people because I'm me and they're not. Right. And eventually you're like, <laughs> that's like, that's not enough. Like you have to create, yeah, you, right. you create what you create and some people will love it. Some people maybe don't get it. And then eventually you have to realize this has to be enough, you know? And that's the hardest thing mm. for me is that it's the constant feeling of like, I'm not satisfied, you know? Sure. And that's, that is what well, you may creates things, but it's also just like you have to step back and look at your place in history and be like, look, you've done plenty. You know, it doesn't have to be the biggest and best thing that's ever been created. It's it's enough, you know? Yeah, man, that's a great word, enough. That's really what I Don't Want to Be a Billionaire is about for me. It's It's aspirational. I can't say that I'm like living by all those things I talk about in the song, you know, it's like a bit of a dream. It's like, I mean, like I said, I have possessions. I do lock my doors, you know, <laughs> et cetera. <laughs> so it's like, it's more, it's more of like, what do you, you know, what, what are some of the aspirational things like love, community, family, friends, good food, good music. Let's call it a day. Like, are we, are we living are we doing the things that we know make us happy or are we just chasing the, the dragon or whatever? Like you said there with, uh, yeah. Is it enough? Um, and you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think artists are ever satisfied. I think ambitious people are ambitious people. It's just like something you have innate in your being. And it's, that's why it's important to have these conversations with yourself is to just say, like, if you're not careful, maybe your your nature will lead you to a place that is, like, unyieldingly uh, chasing, you know? So before we sign off, I want to do one creative exercise, and uh, I want you to think of the... Don't think. Don't think of anything. Just react to the word I'm going to tell you the first okay. thing that comes to your mind from any part of your life. Okay, ready? Brontosaurus. That just made me think of kindergarten. Okay, next one. Chocolate chip cookie. Can't keep them in the house. Do you have a sweet tooth? No, but I don't. Also, I way prefer oatmeal raisin. Like okay. the chocolate chip cookie is, it, if it's good, it's the best thing in the world, but it's often not good because it's often too, okay, I have this thing with Tyler, Tyler Duncan, the producer, musician extraordinary, where we talk about like the cream puff, 
Mm-hmm. The cream puff is good because the cream is sweet, but the puff is not. Okay? So ratio of cream to puff when we're making music, it's like there needs to be contrast. You know? Not everything can be the same volume, for example. Y- you know what I mean? Th- it, these are the principles. Right. And a, a lot of the time, sweet dough, sweet chocolate chips. It's like, man, you did me wrong with that chocolate chip cookie. You know, too sweet. It's like, who's taking the lead here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So That's why you need, you need a little I, s- I'm, sea salt on it. Yeah, I mean, I can go, like, let's do it. Like, if we're going to go in on chocolate chip cookies, let's do it. But I'm just saying, I, I got... You know, I've got I got principles to adhere to. Okay, <laughs> that got way deeper than I thought it would get. Yeah, I've gotten into. I feel like I almost. I think I lost a relationship because of my feelings on sweets. <laughs> All right, next word. <laughs> okay, tambourine. The secret sauce, you know, mm. backbeat enforcement. Amen. It's always funny when you listen to Motown stuff like in a supermarket, like over the PA, and it's just vocals and tambourine. Yeah, tambourine's the loudest thing in the track. Like by a huge margin. Amazing. Like Yeah. <laughs> all right, last one. Lakeside. Michigan. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean. Well, I'm glad we could uh Yeah. We could dive into your brain a little bit, and I'm really proud of all the Me stuff too, that you've man. achieved, man. Thank you, brother. Same to you, man. And I, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you, and uh, I'm glad you asked me to do it. I think I'll I'll dedicate "Good to Be Alone" to those trying to find their trying to find their way during the quarantine, you know. And uh, whatever may, may this be a a time of some kind of self discovery, at the very least. Well, I hope I hope to hang out with you in actual person one of these days. Me too, brother.
There you have it, Mr. Theo Katzman, everybody. You can go to theokatzman.com for his music and his tour dates. His newest record, it just dropped a couple months ago, is called Modern Johnny Sings, Songs in the Age of Vibe. We obviously have no idea when touring as a band, as a songwriter, will even be allowed, but Theo has some dates on the books. August 21st, St. Andrews Hall in Detroit. August 22nd, sold out in Toronto at the Opera House. He's playing Montreal and many more cool places. Check it out, theocatsman.com. If you head over to thebluegrasssituation.com, you'll see that a really cool new podcast has launched. It's called Toy Heart with Tom Power. Man, he's had some big ones just the last few weeks. Ricky Skaggs, Del McCurry, and some really cool stuff to come. Normally, our show will go every other Wednesday, so in between, listen to that new one. It is a beauty. And if you need another fun music podcast to listen to uh, to fill these long days ahead, try Music from 100 Years Ago. It's hosted by a guy named Bryce Fuqua. I think that's how you pronounce his name. And it claims on here that it's been on for 14 years. So he was kind of ahead of his time in his own way. There's music that covers opera, classical music, early jazz, ragtime, blues. It goes on and on. And it's like Bob Dylan's theme time hour, but with your crazy uncle who just set up a podcast rig in his back den. It's really fun. Turn it on. Check it out. Lastly, if you want to support my gang, Dust Bowl Revival, as always, go to DustBowlRevival.com to check out our new record, Is It You, Is It Me? Bring home a purple vinyl. It is so fun to listen to, especially when you're lonely at home. Many of the big music festivals we were hoping to play this year are canceling one by one, but I think there's going to be some fun rescheduled dates in September, so look out for that. And if you really want to support bands, songwriters, performers that you love who are in need right now, you can give to musiccares.com. They are supporting bands like us through this hard time. And you can also buy their merch, send money on their Venmo, at Dust Bowl Revival. And you know what? I just set up a new thing that I'm pretty excited about. It's called Live Lesson Masters. And you can go on there and you can book a songwriting session with me. We have a brand new site for this show, theshowontheroad.com, and we will be adding a tab called Songwriting. Oh, and also on theshowontheroad.com, there is a video page where you can see many of the artists on this podcast playing in living color, including Theo Katzman and Joey Dosick. Wonderful songs for your eyeballs. Check it out. The Show on the Road is hosted by me, Zach Lupiton, and produced by the handsome Hawaiian Chris Jacobs with support from the Bluegrass Situation team. If you love the show on the road, please leave us a review or rating over at iTunes.com slash show on the road. Tell your friends and also be sure to check out BGS's ever-growing collection of podcasts up right now on the bluegrasssituation.com. The show on the road is a part of the BGS Podcast Network. This is Zach Lubiton. See you on the trail. <laughs>